Let's turn back to Exodus uh, chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Now, if you're a visitor here this morning, it might seem rather antiquated, if not irrelevant, that we are going to spend the next 30 minutes looking at a story from 3,400 years ago of a man in ancient Egypt. And the only reason for doing so, the only justification for doing so, is found in the New Testament, because the New Testament in Romans 15 assures us that everything written in the past, that is in the Old Testament, was written to teach us, the recipients of the Old Testament, to teach us that through endurance and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. Why do we need hope? Well, for any number of reasons, but in the context of the story that we're going to unfold, like Moses, we need hope to know that when life goes wrong, God has not given up on us. No matter what our failings, what our mistakes, no matter how difficult our present circumstances, no matter how far we might feel God is from us, this story is telling us that God does not give up on his people. He is, in fact, constantly at work, even though we can't see his hand present in our lives. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you too need to hear this story. Because you need to know the Lord you don't yet know. You need to understand how great and wonderful and big and enormous he is. And that as the Bible tells us, he has your days in his hands. Whether we like that thought or not. So that's why we're turning to this story this morning. And my prayer is that as we trace our way through this story, what happened to Moses those three millennia ago, far from being antiquated or irrelevant, will be as contemporary and vital as imaginable. But let's start where it all begins in verse 11 to 14. It starts with a failed freedom fighter. Now, Sheikh Guevara was an Argentinian Maoist revolutionary. Time magazine listed him as one of the, the hundred most important individuals in the 20th century. Such was his global fame, he was simply known as Shay. Shay. This iconic picture was billboarded the world over in the 1970s and 1980s. As a young medical student from a privileged background, he traveled around South America. He was deeply horrified. He was radicalized by the poverty, by the injustice, by the oppression that he saw inflicted upon those populations by numerous South American dictators. Revolution was born in Shea's heart. Late in the 1950s, he met a man called Fidel Castro, who you may have heard of. There they were in Mexico City. And though they could never have imagined it at the time, that meeting, their encounter, gave birth to the Cuban Revolution. That uprising not only wrested control of that small Caribbean island from its American masters, in turn it sponsored 
and it spawned numerous other revolutions around the world. Even today, the mere mention of the name Shea, the display of this iconic picture, is enough to strengthen the spirit and stir the soul of any would-be revolutionary the world over. Che Guevara, the most famous revolutionary and freedom fighter of the 20th century. Now Moses had a lot in common with Shea. After all, he came from a very wealthy and privileged background, indeed, a royal household. He was very well educated. But he was also driven by a strong sense of justice and indignation at the awful suffering that he saw took place amongst his own people, the Israelites, who were suffering there at the hands of the Egyptians. This anger simmered within him until one day, one day, he made a massive life-changing choice to identify with these oppressed people, with his fellow countrymen, with the Israelites. Later on, much later on in the Bible, Hebrews 11 is going to commend him and actually post him in the, hero, in the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 for that very act of spurning the palace to turn his back upon the pleasures of sin for a season in order to identify with this oppressed people. You might say he was a prototype freedom fighter. The problem was Unlike Shay, he wasn't very good at it. As we see here, his very first act of liberation went well and truly pear-shaped. It proved, in fact, to be his first and last act of revolution for the next 40 years. Let's read 11 to 12. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. He watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that. Seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. At best, Moses' slaying of this Egyptian could be viewed as an act of war, a battle scene, a soldier's work, a noble deed against an oppressive enemy. The problem is, it seems to be slightly a premeditated act of violence. In verse 12, we're told he, he looks this way and that way to make sure nobody has seen him. And having killed the man, he buries him in a shallow grave in the desert. And overnight, he lies in bed and he imagines he's got away with it. But in the morning, he's in for a terrible shock. For when we read on, we find that he comes across next day, verse 13, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The response was quick and immediate and like an arrow. Who made you a judge and a ruler over us, Mr. High and Mighty Moses? You're going to kill us just the way you killed that man yesterday? Who do you think you are, Shea Guevara? You see, that Hebrew man knew that Moses' rash act would rebound upon the Israelites. 
Pharaoh's enforcers would soon be at work among them, seeking revenge and reprisal. Rather than finding a welcome embrace amongst his people, he's met with rejection, accused of hypocrisy. And he's frightened. He's struck with dread, we're told. He knew it would be curtains for him once Moses heard who was responsible for this killing. He wasn't wrong. Verse 15. When Moses heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. So Moses took the only option open to him. He fled. He fled. The would-be liberator, the Che Guevara of his day, found himself fleeing from Egypt as fast as his legs would carry him. Moses will, in God's time, one day be a liberator. But first he has to learn it's got to be done in God's time and in God's way. Now, for the next 40 years, Imagine that, 40 years of his life, he's going to be a failed freedom fighter. His first act of revolution had proven disastrous. And though God had used that to get Moses to identify with the people of God and out of Egypt, there would be a long road ahead. Wilderness years. But though he didn't see it at the time, those very years would be the means of God working in his life, preparing him for what was to come. But for now, verse 15 to 22, he's a man on the run. A man on the run. The warrant's out for his arrest. Pharaoh was incandescent. You can imagine why, can't you? This turncoat Israelite, this man in whom I've invested so much money and education and care and wealth, he's betrayed me. He's going to be brought to justice. I'm going to make an example of him. There was no way back for Moses as long as that Pharaoh was around. And the only place he could go for safety, it seems, was the hill country of Midian. Now, the Midians, Midianites, were descended from Abraham. And in, in God's purposes, they shared a common culture and a common language. So it was a natural option for Moses to make his way to Midian. But on the run, he's still the same man. And the good thing is, he still has a very strong sense of justice. A deep-seated passion for the underdog and for fairness. And one day on his flight from Egypt, he finds himself sat by a wall, by a well rather, on a wall, in a town in Midian. He's sipping his water. You can imagine the scene, can't you? He's sipping the water, just surveying the scene, when along come seven women. And they've got a huge flock of sheep and goats. They've brought them to the well to water them. Moses, just taking the scene in, 
when suddenly a band of rogue shepherds turn up. And without further ado, they drive the seven women off and their cattle. It was a tumbleweed moment. Moses stirs. If not a Che Guevara, he could at least be a Clint Eastwood. He eyeballs the men and moves toward them. Now, sadly, this is so frustrating, is it? We're not told how he did it. Well, we, we know he didn't have a gun because they weren't around in those days. But he must have wielded some kind of weapon in order to face these brigands down. Whatever it was, those shepherds realized this man was not to be messed with. He's probably a big man, an imposing man, wielding some weapon. If they but knew it, he was used to killing people. Sense prevailed. They fled. The women run home, tell their dad what's happened. Now his name is Ruel, also known as Jethro. We'll come across him again later in Exodus. When they tell him what's happened, he's outraged that he's left this stranger They've left this stranger at the well because that goes against all the customs of the Middle East and hospitality and kindness. Get back there straight away, he says. In the event, Moses goes back, not simply for a meal. He actually goes back for the next 39 years. He will spend as long there as he had in Egypt. He was wrapped in their hospitality and the care of Jethro and his family. So much so that Jethro gives him Zipporah, his daughter, in marriage. Yet Moses wasn't at home, and we know he wasn't at home because of verse 22. For when Zipporah gives him a son, Moses names him Gershon, Gershon. I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. You see where his own attempts to do God's work for him had ended him up, left him, led him to? Here he was in this place of remoteness, this desert place, sense of failure, regret, alienation. Even the joy of a first son brings with it the pathos of, yeah, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a foreigner in an alien land. I'm wanted by his own people, a fugitive in his adopted home, just about as far from a liberator as you could imagine. And yet, all this time, God is at work. 
shaping him, preparing him, humbling him to realize that his natural talents and his good heart when it came to liberation were not enough to help the Israelites on their own. Teaching Moses that being an alien in a foreign land lay at the heart of following his God. Preparing him for that special part, that unique part that he would have in the exodus, the massive exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Which is worth pausing at this point to ask ourselves the question, what might God be doing in your life, in my life, at this very point? You see, often, if we're a Christian, we roll along very ordinary, everyday lives, but then suddenly a drama invades, a disappointment comes our way, life takes a turn, it leaves us feeling stranded, uncertain, unsure of what God is doing. Moses lived with that for 40 years. You may be a young person, a teenager, or a young adult. And it might feel that life has dealt you something of a hard hand. You struggle because of your background, because of your circumstance, to understand what's God possibly doing in my life. Maybe like Moses, you're a bit older. Your Christian life, life itself, hasn't turned out the way you expected. Failings of earlier years still haunt you. Unfulfilled ambitions, bad decisions, broken relationships, regret, gnaw away at your spirit and rob you of any sense of real lasting joy in Christ. Maybe you're at a stage that though you're a Christian, you look back. You look back on the love and the zeal, the passion that you had for Christ in earlier years and wonder how it is that your life, your spiritual life, has become so dry, so joyless, so bitter. You can identify with that poem, that hymn of William Cowper, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian, but you are at a point where you're beginning to wonder about your life. What's it really all about? It may be that a tragedy has invaded and you're questioning the very meaning of your existence, the purpose of it all. Well, my friends, whoever we are, whatever life stage we're at, right now, I want to remind you and show you this wasn't the end of the story for Moses. Far from it. It was the end of the beginning. 
And that can be the very same for you and I this morning. Moses, you see, one day would look back and understand that these seemingly ordinary, mundane, wilderness years were actually God's way of preparing him for what lay ahead. Now, for the first time in the story, God appears on the scene. Verses 23 to 24. It's fascinating. Up till now, there's been no mention of God in this account. It could prompt the question, had Moses so messed up that actually God had given up on him? Or had God lost interest in the Israelites? Was he now working on plan B up in heaven? Indeed. Has he given up on you and on me? Well, the resounding answer of what we're going to see now in these two verses, the resounding answer of this verse and indeed the rest of the Bible is that God never gives up. He never gives up on his plans and his purposes and his people. That's the great truth that is going to become evident here. God never gives up. As Romans 8 puts it, in all things, in all things, God is at work in the lives of those who love him. Who are called according to his power in all things in the bad things in the sad things as well as the good things we sang about it at the beginning didn't we blessed be your name oh it's it's great when the sun is shining all seems well with the world everything's going well in life but the test comes when the crisis comes, when things go pear-shaped as they did for Moses, when life becomes hard, can we say, blessed be your name, then? Well, these two verses want to encourage us to do just that. Look what it says, please. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help came up because of their slavery, came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. (laughs) The reality is, God was at work all over the place all the time. He just couldn't see it. But now, it's laid out for us. Yes, he hears, he remembers, he sees, he cares. He was at work in Egypt. He called time on the life of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who was oppressing Moses. So it cleared the way for Moses now to be able to return safely to that land. He was at work amongst the Israelites. They cried out to God. It appears, it seems to infer, they'd not done that for a very long time. Remarkable, though, it seems to us. They'd not cried out. But when they did, at long last, what did God do? He heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. 
He looked upon them. He was concerned about them. He hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows. He did for them, he does for you, my friend, and for me, if we are his. And when it says here, God remembered, it's not as if he'd had a memory lapse. <laughs> not at all. It's, it's not that it slipped his memory. This is a classic Bible spoiler alert. It's actually saying, beep, 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 beep. This is the rest of the story coming up, all these ensuing chapters. They're all flowing from the fact that I'm a God who keeps my word. I remember my covenant. And it's unbreakable. It's unstoppable. It's a spoiler alert. You see, it's the kind of remembering that inspires action. It's the kind of looking that is fueled with deep compassion. He looks with compassion upon his people. As he looks with compassion upon his people everywhere, throughout time, right now. As he looks with compassion upon you. He looks with concern, the kind of concern that exposes his personal, intimate knowledge of their circumstance. As Jesus said, the hair of your head is numbered. Now none of us are so self-focused that we would ever try to count the hair upon our head, would we? Of course we wouldn't. But God knows the number of hairs even if they're not as many as they were the year before. He still knows. His intimate knowledge is unbelievable. But that's what it is to be God. His mercy is never ending. You see, God was at work in the ordinary, in the rough and tumble, in the mess and jumble of Moses' life. It's always the way. Moses will be a liberator. He'll become actually even more famous than Che Guevara, believe it or not. But he'll become so God's way, God's time. And the Lord uses these wilderness years to prepare him. He does the same right now. You see, at times our lives will be full of all kinds of conflicting emotions, unanswered questions, find ourselves in strange places, struggling with the very ordinariness of our circumstances, doubting that God has any particular special concern for us. This story shouts out, that's not right. He does care. He sees, he remembers, he looks, he provides. But like Moses, he might take us to a dry place, to a hard place, to a barren place. Invariably, it will be to humble us, because that's the biggest work that God does in any of our lives. Think of Peter, the arch-type, proud man even when he'd seen so much of the Lord Jesus, even when Jesus restored him, he still struggled with pride. God was years humbling Peter, even after the resurrection. But in the end, in his epistle, in his first epistle, he makes the point, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
a typical bloke. It takes him years to learn the truth. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And his work in all of us is to humble us, not to grind us in the dust, but to, that we might have an understanding that we're not God, but he is. And we're in his hands. And when that happens, you will look back and you will see that all that's happened to you has been God's way of weaving grace into the tapestry of your life. Right now, all you can do is look at the back of the tapestry. Oh, it's confusing. It's just, it's just tangles and knots and loose ends. But from God's perspective, it's very clear. He is the God who sees. He's the God who sees what's behind and what's ahead. He's so big, so powerful, that if we but glimpsed it, it would revolutionize our trust of him. A thousand years, you see, after Moses, 1,400 years after, another liberator would come out of Egypt. Another rescuer. He was a very humble man. He was full of grace and truth. He was also a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. Who described himself as lowly and gentle. His name, as you know, is Jesus Christ. And he stands testimony right now to the fact that God brings the greatest good to this world out of the greatest suffering. It's just the way he does it. And he does it for the sake of his people. It's astonishing. The God who sees and hears and remembers and knows did not spare his own son all the suffering, all the tragedy of life. Why not? This is the amazing thing. That you and I, human beings who inhabit this planet but for a few years, a drop in the ocean in eternity's time, that people like you and I might be forgiven. That we don't have to stay in the desert full of regrets. We can hear the words of the Lord. I have removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west and I remember it no more. Take him at his word. We're not called to live with regrets. We're not called to beat ourselves up if we're a Christian. We're called to embrace grace. Grace means forgiveness, acceptance, Forgiveness by God, acceptance with him. If he's done that with me, everything else flows from that. We must get a grip upon the power of grace. There's no need to spend our time full of regret, bewildered by what has happened. No, we can look at it through an entirely new lens and understand that God has woven all these things to bring us to himself.
And it may be you're not a Christian here this morning. And it will well be that things are happening in your life that have really knocked you for six. And you may wonder, where's God in all this? Well, look at the cross. That's where God is. God so loved you. He so loved the world that he gave his very best to right all the wrongs of our arrogance, our pride, our refusal to bow the knee to him. To begin to deal with all the mess that we invite upon ourselves because of our foolish ways, because of our arrogance, because of our determination to go our own way. And yet, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the only place you'll find it. The tragedy is that we can hear it and not embrace it. Don't be a tragedy. Embrace the one who loves you, whose eyes upon you, who numbers not only the head, hairs upon your head, but the days of life that he grants you in order that you might come to your senses and come and know him. Friend, this morning, if you're a Christian, remember that verse in Philippians. He who began a good work in you will carry it on till the day of completion in Christ Jesus. He will achieve his work. And we only have to look at the cross to understand that before glory comes a cross. And that's the way the Savior went. That's the way we have to go. We need to go. We must go to know his blessing. It means that if you know the Lord, you can look back, you can look around, you can look forward and say with the hymn writer, all the way my Savior leads me. What else have I beside to ask? Who can doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Let's pray before we sing that lovely hymn. Father, you're such an amazing God that we need to appreciate again that you've made us in your image, you've made us to know you, and that if we do know you, that our days are in your hands, every single one of them. And all the events and circumstances of our life, no matter what they might be, are all being woven into your glorious purposes and plans. So this morning, if we find ourselves in that desert place, if we found ourselves like Moses in the wilderness, Lord, help us gratefully, willingly, hurriedly, to return to you, to cry out to you, to know you. And Lord, if we don't yet know you, may this morning, even this day, be that day when we take that step. We cry to you to meet with us, to forgive us, to accept us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you never turn away anyone. Anyone. Amen. Amen.
Well, whilst Dave Claire to lead us, we're going to sing it unaccompanied, and then we're going to sing. Uh, what we're we going to sing after that, Dave? He will hold me fast. How appropriate. Thank you.